And I really like my, my Rodecaster Pro. It's a, uh, it's a really nice piece of equipment. And um, Rode does not sponsor me in any way, but I, I will just say that uh, as far as equipment goes, um, they make a good product. Um, Road, if you're ever listening to this and you want to support this uh, this effort of, of mine uh, and media medicine, I would gladly take a second Roadcaster uh, Pro. I, I find myself needing another one uh, because I oftentimes have opportunity to make uh, phone call interviews uh, from my home office, and uh, having another Roadcaster would be a little more convenient than packing one around. In fact, I might just buy one. I don't know. It's a, it's a really great piece of equipment. That's an unsolicited piece of uh advice and recommendation for all of you. Okay, uh, we're going to get into John Bowditch today, uh, but I wanted to comment on a couple of things, and you'll bear with me, I hope. Um, and again, if it, it lengthens this a little bit, uh, um, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. Um, it is October, what is today? October 14th, and um, I finally feel, uh, after today, well, in the last week or two, I finally feel like my brain is back in the United States after deployment. I, being old and going overseas for months on end is not for the faint of heart or for the elderly. Uh, I am 56 years old. I'm on the late stages of middle age, heading towards being elderly by definition. And um, yes, I've already gotten my, uh, my notification from AARP, so... <laughs> <laughs> that is de most and most definitely in the elderly side. So, you know, to, uh, today I got to spend uh, an hour with future pre-meds and um, I tend to be try to be very objective with them. I start off with by what's awful in medicine today and I try to finish before questions about what's good about being a physician today. Um, I do that because I think they need academic honesty and I think they need to be able to make really significant choices well-informed and objectively, but I want to leave them on the positive note and not just on the, this is the downside and this is why you, you don't want to consider this as a, as a career field. Because I think for many, many people, it's a great career field. I think it just requires a person to be very self-aware and introspective about what they're getting into because of the tremendous personal financial costs, emotional costs, true personal costs in terms of maybe delaying a family or other things for years because of just the nature of learning and training to be a physician. And so that was a fun time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Rona update, SARS-CoV-2. Um, I have a separate social media platform that I don't widely broadcast. I usually do it uh, my posts with video, and I talk about these current things and what I'm seeing. Um, I did that really for friends um, who said, we have questions about this stuff. Would you be willing to answer it? And so I go out and I dig up the reference material, and then I say, here's the article I got this from, and this is what I think they're saying. And it's been well-received. Um, I hesitate to uh, put that out for wide consumption because I want to make sure that um, it's correctly seen as just one one person's opinion in a in a sea of seven billion people, right? Uh, but I have done the Rona update with them. Uh, I haven't done one in almost a year because I was getting ready to go overseas, and so it's time probably for another Rona update. I want to talk about a couple of things for those of you who take the time to listen to this. Um, hybrid work. We're seeing changes in how hybrid work work uh, how hybrid work is working, right? I think in during Corona, I found out I was much more productive. With, with being at home. Uh, I saved literally an hour of commuting. And even though I listen to audiobooks in the car, not having to think about, okay, 
getting ready and the whole process of going to work and then oh, what am I going to eat for lunch? Do I have to pack my lunch? Do I have to do all that? You know, I'd eat my meals in 15, 20 minutes and I'd walk 30 feet to my kitchen, right, to do that. And I'd be right back to work. And I would work not, you know, the holy cow, it's 4.30, I want to go home and I want to be eating dinner at 5.30 or whatever. No, I'd, my wife would text me and I'd show up on my computer screen in my office, say, are you ready for it to eat? I said, how long? 10 minutes? Great. I'll start walking over there in about seven and a half minutes, right? Hybrid work is effective for the right people. And um, I say that as a person who feels like they're the right person. I could spend every day of my life in my own office. It's really well equipped. Um, my studio, hopefully, I'm gonna actually going to make a phone call about that today. My studio at home will be finished. I'll be able to shoot video, do interviews, do podcasts. Um, and I, it, I gain an extra hour to two hours a day of productive time by having that facility at my home. It, it just it just is, and I can produce more. I mean, I'm potentially eligible to be a full professor, and I haven't been able to do a whole lot in terms of stuff personally for research, right? I've been caught up with other things, which are equally as important, but as far as career progression, that sort of thing, buying out a extra time would be very helpful. Um, so hybrid work is, is challenging. And I, I talked, uh, had a meeting earlier today where one of the folks in the meeting said, you know, I, I find it really bad if people don't have their cameras on, right? I think what we've really seen is that we call these meetings together and there's about three or four principal players that really have a vested interest in the bulk of the meeting. And then everybody else tangentially might have a very small snippet, 5%, 10% of the meeting with, that really applies to them where they might have input. And yet in a in-person meeting, you don't have the luxury of working on other things without appearing rude. With virtual work, you can turn your camera off, be working on other things, listening to what's going on and saying, okay, I'm being efficient. And when my area of interest comes up, I can then start contributing. There's this assumption that meetings, and this is going to change, and there's, there's books written on this, um, that meetings uh, are something that are not. Um, meetings generally speaking, aren't for everybody at the meeting. They're usually for a couple of people that can be handled much quicker. And um, generally speaking, you only need these coordination meetings very rarely. Um, Elon Musk is notorious about that. If you want to find out about the philosophy of meetings, I think if you probably just Googled Elon Musk and meetings, I think you'd find some interesting things about how meetings really should work. And there's some other, other authors that have published on this that I think are really helpful. So people are trying to figure out hybrid work now as we get more and more in person. I find as an introvert that likes remote working, I also very much need to be in the presence of real people on on regular intervals. So whether that's teaching, um, you know, you may know that OUHCOM has three campuses, but the faculty at any given time live on one, and we're geographically very distant. I find that difficult, at least in part, that I don't actually see in the real, physically in the room, students that I am educating. I don't know how much that affects other educators, but at least for me, a couple times a year being in the same space as the people that you're teaching would really be helpful. Uh, I know that our administration, certainly my department chair, isn't opposed to that. It just takes some coordination and planning, and so I think that's going to be an interesting evolution over time. Booster shots for COVID. I don't know what to make of it. I've talked to the pharmacist. I've talked to, uh, I've tried to read the literature on it. I, I'm fully immunized with Moderna, uh, but I know that a booster's available. My mom just asked me if she should get one. She's elderly, and I said, yes, you should. Yeah. Get a booster shot. Why not? Uh, be prepared for uh, accelerated immune response or an immune response that's more aggressive. I don't know what to make of it. There's not enough data for me to really know. Um, so people ask me, will you get a booster? I said, yes, if. What that means is 
when I see a consensus on the part of the FDA and everybody, Moderna, Pfizer, I, I'm a Moderna shot guy. That's what I got. So when I see the consensus and it's really preponderance that says this, yeah, you really should get one, then I'll get one. That's just science-based evidence stuff, right? Um, social media in the age of COVID still is vitriolic. You still see people, and it's getting worse, right? So now we're having mandates which are shutting down airline schedules, which are shutting, which are getting and making nurses and first responders change, make job decisions. Uh, the other day in Portland, they talked about firefighters potentially walking off the job because of enforced vaccine mandates. People have better get a real handle on this because they're not thinking in terms of long-term effects. And we don't need to lose firefighters. We don't need to lose nurses. We don't need to lose any of these people. And I know it's very emotional, but again, you've heard me say, I, am, if I, I recommend everybody get vaccinated. I, I'm convinced that the safety's there. There's, there. There are adverse effects, no question, but there's with every vaccine, with every medication. But the preponderance of people who get these vaccines do just fine. And the vast majority of people who are on ventilators with COVID are unvaccinated. Very few people who get vaccinated end up on a ventilator. And if you go on a ventilator with COVID, your, your, your potential life outcome is very dismal. Uh, yeah, um, and it's challenging. My, 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 one of my family members is uh, in medicine, and, and they deal with delivering bad news. And they work on a COVID acute care unit. And it's, deb it's hard, young person, having to go talk to family saying, yeah, your family member that you love is going to die. There's nothing else we can do. Um, I encourage any of you who are who are vaccine curious, hesitant, apprehensive. I never use the term anti-vaxxer because I think it's wrong. And I see people using it, and it's wrong. But those of you who are still struggling with that, like, do I really want to take that risk? Or I'm worried or concerned? I respect all that. I do. I respect people who go on a civil liberties uh, angle and say, it's my right to control what goes into me. You do. I agree. I don't think you should lose your job over that. That's my personal opinion. But as a medical professor, a clinician who treats patients with COVID, a, a person who's connected with people who are treating critically ill people with COVID, I really, really encourage you to go get vaccinated. I, I wouldn't tell you if I thought there was great harm to be had. And I'm very much a civil libertarian, very much. Um, monoclonals, I don't know yet. Uh, I've asked uh, my colleagues about formulating a clinical path for that. I know what the guidelines are, and I think they're very efficacious, but someone asked me the other day, what do you think about monoclonals? I think they're very effective in the right application, like everything else, right? So the, the discussion about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, all these things, I can point to you valid, really well-respected journals that will tell you there's this is the mechanism of action that this drug works on that we think may affect SARS-CoV-2. So when you hear people say, I, I heard about ivermectin, and someone says in social media, yeah, that's that's for horses. We use ivermectin in people. We do for parasitic infections, and there is a cellular pathway that it affects, and it can have implications with SARS-CoV-2 theoretically. It's not panning out in research, but again, I said this with hydroxychloroquine a year ago. Research it. Do large controlled studies to look and see if that pathway is effective enough to warrant mass recommendation for the use of the drug. We have, we're Americans. We can do scientific surveys that have good power and, and, and tell us good information. I, I don't understand why it becomes so weaponized, but it does. And people get manipulated and they get upset and it's not worth it. We, we, we're bigger than that. We can do studies and say, let's get a trial. Let's get a trial and see if it works. 
it can only help, right? It might harm, and if we get harms, then we know something there, but that's still helping us because then we have a better understanding of, of, of it. And to that extent, then we go to this next point I have, which is um, uh, over it, over it. People are over COVID. Um, the people making public health policy, I, I'm sure most of them, diligent as they are and, and consummate professionals, don't want this to go any longer than they think is reasonable in terms of public health risk. I think there are some people that are kind of basking in the in the notoriety. They're very few, but they are there. Um, that suddenly now this is all in the forefront and this is our time to strike and get more funding or whatever they're lobbying for. But the reality is, is that most Americans are just over this. They have been hit and beaten and trashed and smashed and, and tossed around, and they just want to be free and live their lives and be left alone. Um, I had this discussion the other day about why it's difficult. COVID vaccination rates, I, I pulled it up, uh, the historic vaccination rates. I lost the link, and I'm going to try to put it in the show notes, but and I'm going to, again, when we start talking with John here in a minute, uh, looking for the historical vaccination rates. Don't quote me, uh, but I think it's right. Uh, my link is good. About 90% is what we get on a high side from MMR um polio vaccinations, that kind of thing. 90%. You do not get 100% vaccination rates. And it's not just because of religious exemptions. It's not just because of, of um, moral quandary. Some of it is because of individual autonomy. That's what you get in a free society. And uh, you pay a price if you try to do mandates. You're seeing it now. Utter division, um, hostility at times, um, air, airline pilots that, I mean, Southwest, their, their party line is it was weather delays, but funny enough, I mean, I looked at the weather. I've got access to aviation weather. I'm not seeing big weather problems. Not for a re, not for a resilient airline like Southwest. Something happened there where they're canceling. And, yes, it has effects. They said, hey, it's weather and, hey, it's pilot shortages. Those can all be real factors. But the sheer number of flight cancellations in the midst of this federal mandate to get pilots vaccinated um, – I'm not saying that they're telling us something that's not correct. I'm just saying it's suspicious to me. And then you hear about Portland and the firefighters, and you hear about nurses being laid off, and it's just going to get to be louder and louder. The vast majority of people when confronted with, and this includes the military, when confronted with the option of keeping their job by getting vaccinated or losing their job by not getting vaccinated will be co- will do it. But it is coercive, and it has long-term effects on, prior, on loyalty, on trust, on perceptions of leadership, that all plays a role. And in the short term, people say, so what? We achieved the goal. That's a really short-sighted way of looking at it. And people need to be a little bit more uh, conscious about what the effects will be. Um, so over it. Uh, less People go into mask mandates in, in Athens, where I'm at, and I go into the, the stores to do my, my shopping and... Half the people are wearing masks, half aren't. They just don't care. And the longer it goes, the more they don't care. And the longer it goes, the less of an issue this is. And then the next crisis will come up. So that's that's coronavirus. It's been quite a ride. And I will tell you that I've spoken to four different practitioners, physicians, who've told me they have colleagues that have said they're out. They're done. This has been the breaking point. In the midst of all the other healthcare issues that face physicians, kind of brings us full circle to talking with the med students today, or the pre-med students. They're done. They're at the point of their career where maybe it's five, ten, five or six years before they thought they retired, but this has been it. This has pushed them over. We saw that also with EHRs, where doctors just said, I can't do the EHR. It's too much pressure. Uh, 
and they decided to retire and leave. You're going to see more and more transformation in medical practice over time. And this uh, is going to have impacts. Uh, it goes along with the social movement of more women into medicine. Uh, that will have dramatic effects on on their satisfaction with work, especially as a lot of those women have families. They want to spend more time at home, more time with their children. They want flexible work schedules. They need them to feel good about themselves and have the resiliency they need to go in and take care of patients. We're going to have we're going to have ripple effects for a very long time, especially if we lose more doctors, more nurses, more PAs, more nurse practitioners who just say, I don't want to put up with this. I don't want to have my boss now controlling everything I do. They already, we, I will just say this. It's already very easy to feel as if you have no wiggle room as a physician, uh, that your life is being run by everybody that everybody but people who care for patients. Right. And so this is a real challenge. I'd pay attention to these social trends. They, they have import and uh, they, they will have effects over time. So with that, we're going to uh, finish this up. It's a beautiful afternoon uh, as I try to get this done and edited and out the door today for you. Um, we're going to talk with John Bowditch. The third episode in this series is going to be John's experience in healthcare. But the first two are about science technology and their ramifications today, especially in AI, machine learning, and that kind of thing. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you want to, you can find me on LinkedIn um, under my name, Todd Fredericks, D-O, um, or certainly shoot me an email. You'll see it in the show notes. I'd love to hear any comments, and, and if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, I can go find plenty of things that interest me, but if there's something that interests you more, tell me. I'll go find someone. Thanks. Have a great day. Uh, and, oh, don't just leave, right? We're going to start with... with well, you already hear it. The music is playing. We're going somewhere else now. Okay, hold on. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. And then uh, at about 30 minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll cut out. And we'll, if you're willing to do, we might have two segments. I don't know. Maybe you don't want to do Texas. Maybe you just want to do one. I, I'm good till like noon. So okay, I'm only good till 1130. So well, we, then, get, yeah. we get two segments. Very That's good. good. <laughs> okay. So you ready? Yeah. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Dr. Todd Fredericks uh, at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And um, in the uh, beginning of the school year and... The return to the United States and watching the sort of uh, destruction of social media around COVID for the second time and all that stuff, I thought I needed a break. And so I thought I would ask my friend, John Bowditch, who is the director of the Grid Lab here at, at OU, to come and talk. And the reason why I wanted him to do that is because you know, Rotations is about science and medicine. Uh, and the Grid Lab has a role to play in that, but it's also because John's a really smart guy, and he knows a lot of stuff, and it's always fun to talk to him because there's going to be something synthesized in here that has some relevance to something that I'm interested in, and maybe you're interested in it too, but it's also important you know what Grid Lab does because it's a really unique thing at OU, 
And John has some um, historical knowledge of it, I think. He could probably tell you about that. And uh, so with that, we're going to introduce him. So John, you came by. You found Irvine. I did. My new office. It took a while to find your office. It, yes, it, took, <laughs> it took a while to find my office. Um, tell us, tell us, tell me about, tell, I know about you, but you tell the people listening about you. John Bowdish. Where did John Bowdish start and where did you, where, to now, in, in the three or four minutes? Uh, well, I, I came from Hilliard, Ohio. I grew up in Hilliard, which is a north, northwest side of Columbus. But I've been in Athens since 2000. I came down here in 2000 um, to study, got all my degrees from OU, and just stayed. Um, and for my graduate studies, I started working on the idea behind the Grid Lab with a lot of uh, with with a couple other faculty and other students. And uh, you know, the Grid Lab opened in 2005 and has gone through a lot of changes. We're still here, um, so we're now in our 16th year of existence. Yeah, so, but, but you're a film guy. I am a film guy, yeah. I, r- I really wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, it just turned out I really didn't like working with actors. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of a problem because like, in many ways we've kind of come full circle. I mean, like game development and filmmaking are really starting to overlap in certain segments now. Um, and so we are spending a lot more time with actors now. Um, I'm more kind of on the technical producer side, so I don't have to necessarily deal with deal with them on a daily basis but um i've come around to actors so i had this theory for a long time because uh uh one i have a son that's fascinated by voice acting and two because of um what's happening in cg that at the age of the i'm not sure how this works if if people just need to see people on the red carpet or if we're going to approach a period of time where we don't really need a identifiable person as the actor that all becomes voices and what we generate in a computer yeah. So I did. So the question is: Is can you put up with the voice actor? Is that easier than putting <laughs> up with the, the the other presence? Or what? You, For sure. Because I mean, that's yeah. happening. It sounds like if you don't like working with actors as a filmmaker, you're just about 20, 30 years too soon. Right? Yeah. You, well, I, you could make all I CGI. Love working with computers, right? And so, like, it. I, I like the idea of artificial characters, digital characters, um, artificial intelligence. I'm I'm really looking forward to some expansions in that area. Um, you know, whether or not we need to see people on red carpet, that's always kind of been a mystery to me. <laughs> I was looking at some uh, photos this morning on Twitter from the Met Gala, yeah. and uh, I, don't, I don't see the attraction to a lot of that. But yeah, this, people are fascinated by this. They want to watch oh, yeah. the Academy Awards, the Emmys, they want to see these dresses and stuff. Yeah. And there was this movie, well, I think it was Al Pacino, was it her? Yeah. Was it, no, you, no, it's uh, Simone. Simone, yeah, where yeah. they completely created this fictitious character yep. and a whole background and stuff, and people bought into it. Oh, yeah. Is that coming? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, there's already some examples of famous people's likeness being used um, since they've long passed. I mean, so um, there was a recent documentary for, uh, about Anthony Bourdain's life. Uh, um, I saw it on the poster. Is it out yet? Yeah, I, I, it may be out, like, in limited release, but um, it, it's making a lot of um, kind of noise because uh, they, they recreated his voice with an AI. No. And and so in many, I mean, he's basically narrating this film. Post-mortem. Post-mortem, right? And so that means a writer created all of his dialogue, and this computer is processing all of that and outputting something that sounds like him, and it definitely sounds like him. So it's, it, is, it is an acknowledged deepfake. Yeah. That's yeah. terrifying. It's 
It is terrifying. I mean, like... Um, so where do the releases come from? Is a state? I don't know. That's a really interesting legal and ethical question, right? Because I know how much you love Chris. I know how much you love Princess Leah's appearance. And yeah, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, we, you know, but that wasn't deep fake. That was actually just CG artists trying to over. They, they should not have done that in Star Wars Rogue One. Um, you know, but it, you're right. It's going to introduce a lot of legal ethical questions, right? So, take take some something that's copyright that was copyrighted, but is now in the public domain. Mm. So like, if you're looking at film, like a lot of the early silent films are now public domain. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that I could use uh, Charlie Chaplin's, Charlie Chaplin's or Buster Keaton's likeness in a commercial film? I don't know. Can you? I don't know. If I source all of the images from a public domain film, could I release a film starring Charlie Chaplin? I mean, it raises an interesting question. Um, I think the law is definitely behind on this, as they are with, like, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think that especially famous people will probably need to have, like, clauses in their wills saying, this is what my likeness may be used with post-mortem. Yep. Um, well, you know what? The thing is, is and of course, I can... What I think about is who owns you? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who owns you? And people think, well, you're talking about it's about film, but I'm also talking about medicine, yeah. the electronic health record. Yeah. Right? So people that are not you put stuff about you in there. That's right. That has dramatic implications across your life, insurance premiums, everything else. And For if, sure. if, and one might argue that errors are misuse of you because it's not accurate portrayal of you. It's not yeah. a, fi a, a fidelity issue. Well, it's a really quick input about me. It's I mean, a really quick input of you. Yeah. And if it's erroneous, it's persistent forever For in, sure. the, in, the inner, in the inner tubes, in the interwebs. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we do have, have cross-disciplinary issues about who owns you. Kind of like these gene guys that want to patent genes yeah. that are you. That they discover. That yeah. they discover yeah. that yeah. are well, you. That seems absurd. I mean, because they're not inventing anything. No. Um, you know, just because you discovered Greenland or something doesn't mean you get to own it, right? I mean, like... <laughs> yeah, um, that's true, right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's... it's On the medical record side especially, I mean, sometimes uh, when I'm speaking to a doctor, I feel like I'm just really speaking to someone that's doing data entry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I would be far better at doing data entry about myself than, than they are. Yeah. Um, it, but it's, you know, it, we do a lot of this to ourselves, though. Right, so um, while that may have, like, while there may be records about you know, where you spend money, how much money you spend, how often, um, you know, your web search uh, priorities, right? Like uh, your, your web search criteria that you most commonly search for says a lot about you, right? And so that's how they're able to target ads to you. Well, this is the whole film, this is the whole realm of marketing psychology and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing where they're actually building algorithms well, this is the, the, I mentioned this to the medical students the other day about social media, how social yeah. media, it's clearly acknowledged that they silo people into groups that are like-minded for the yes. sake of ad revenue. And it's, it's creating a, um, an idiocracy of a sorts that people no longer come into contact with other people that have varying ideas yes. because they're, 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 they're corralled into this group think. Yes. And therefore they think, well, 
95% of people think like me and the 5% that don't are either anti-science or anti-intellectual or there's something anti. They're wrong. They're wrong. Yeah. And they're, when they're in fact, wrong. you've been, you have been socially manipulated <laughs> yep. to believe that by these organizations that yep. gather all this data on you and use very complex machine learning and algorithms to profile you basically. Yeah. And, and if you're someone that actually tries to seek out differing opinions online, the algorithms really try to get you to silo. Right. Have you tried that? You know, it's, uh, I, I, with my wife, I just call it, uh, it's called everything that is like computerized, the algorithm, right? Like, uh, <laughs> the algorithm. You know, like I, it's like, I want to search for this on the web, but I'm going to do it in private mode because I don't want the algorithm to know, you know, what symptom I'm looking up or, um, so what's you your, know. what's your browser then? I use Safari. Um, now there is a lot of information that I, I don't mind sharing. I mean, how do you, um, but one of the stuff that you're concerned about, how do you, how do you search anonymously? How do you avoid the algorithm? Well, there's like the incognito modes, which is maybe just a false sense of security. It probably is just a false sense of security. Really, all it does is it doesn't cache anything. It doesn't save any cookies. It doesn't save your browser history. Um, you know, but like if I'm, uh, it's, you know, sometimes you, uh, when you show like a YouTube video in class, if there's an ad in front of it, that ad's going to be targeted towards you. And I've seen some people kind of embarrassed by the ads they have shown. That's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you have any kind of uh, if you have any kind of uh, inclination towards the inappropriate, sure. the broadly inappropriate, a, yeah. a professor or, or get in real trouble. Like, or even like the uh, the the videos that are like suggested by the algorithm, um, it, it can say a lot about someone, right? So to give you an example, I I had back surgery in early August. And so I was Googling a lot of stuff about, you know, um, having good posture and, you know, uh, making sure that I'm not making my back worst. Um, and so in class last week, I was showing off something on YouTube and the ad that played before it was like one of those, um, those uh, devices you put on your back that zaps you, that tells you when you're slouching. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not coincidental. No, of course not. Um, well, I, I know too, there's this, uh, I forget where it was, but these stores now that have video displays that, I forget how they keyed off, but basically they've, the, the, the end cap advertising changed based upon the individual walking by. Sure. So I think it was cell phone driven or something that it was pinging your cell phone. I forget how that worked, but it was yeah. something terrifying where they were, they were collecting on you, you didn't know it. And as you walk by, the person before you had, you know, whatever brand of peanut butter, but, the, but as you walk by, all of a sudden you're being advertised for smart water or whatever, sure. right? Yeah. And, and people don't realize that they're constantly emitting this stuff. It, they're, they're feeding it. They're feeding it with their yeah. watches, their phones, everything is turned on and broadcasting out there to right. the world. And this thing is working out there in a way to come back and manipulate you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you're not fooled that, you know, Alexa or Suri isn't listening to you all the time. Mm. Of course that is, I mean, like it, you know, she is, they are, you know, whatever. What is, what is, you know, so, <laughs> uh, they're, of course they're listening to you because they're waiting for at least the prompt of, Hey Suri or Alexa, that's an open mic. Um, to somewhere, to somewhere, to a giant server um, farm out, you know, and there's there. been like, uh, legal cases about whether or not like an Alexa recorded a, a homicide. Right. And like whether that was like accessible information to to retrieve. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 like equal parts fascinating, um, but also equal parts scary because, you know, if you really wanted to change as a person, it's 
it's like trying to steer an aircraft carrier. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like something you're going to be able to do overnight. You can't selectively go into Facebook's algorithms and, and delete the parts of you you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what does this say? I mean, it, it, privacy. What, what does it say about privacy? Can a person truly engage in private activity anymore? I, uh, you know, it's funny. I think a lo- <laughs> I see on um, social media a lot of people concerned over privacy. It, it just seems like an oxymoron. I mean, like, if, <laughs> you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, you are basically eliminating your mm-hmm. privacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a really big proponent of um, digital rights. Um, I, I think, like, every political administration has just kind of forgotten about that, protecting that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a civil civil liberties right that we just exclude. Um, but often, but we also feed it. Yeah. Right? So um, if we're angry about a particular issue, you're going to search Google or Facebook to kind of feed that anger a little bit. And it's um, the algorithm's going to see that, and it's just going to help feed you more and more and more. Yeah. And so that's like like so many of these issues that we're seeing today that are driven by these like online information dumps. They feel like pressure cookers that are you know getting close to to exploding. Well, and what about the what about the issue too? And we face this in the medical school of people who have an online presence that you know you know as well as I do. You change over time. You change yeah. dramatically. Usually, when you have children, you when you get married or have a significant other, and and your life is no longer just your own. It, but now the internet's forever. The yes. memory is is truly persistent. So you can't you can't say, well, yeah, when I was eighteen, I had this. And the only thing a person can key off on is what you tell them, because yeah. there's no record other than you were being there and experience. Now photographic records it can a person can a person have any hope of scrubbing their past life off the internet no there's no way i mean like my friends and i are so fortunate we got through college before social media right i mean you probably did a lot of stupid stuff at 14 or 15 like do you want to be remembered for that forever that part is i think terrifying because um Kids, especially teenagers that are first getting exposed to social media, they don't understand the long-term impacts of that. They probably, if they did, they probably don't care. Um, they don't have the, the, the brain to care because they don't right. realize the implications yet. Um, you know, and so like, you could always go back and try to delete old posts, try to scrub yeah. the bad videos, but if someone copied it, it exists forever. Like the, the, I truly believe the internet is forever. Yeah. Well, in all in, in all candor and full disclosure, I went to the largest party school in California in the 1980s, which is California State University Chico, and I started before my 17th birthday, and so I was a 17 year old where there was a l- massive kegger on <laughs> every night of the week. Yeah, that's changed substantially at Chico yeah. now. So, but but at the time, it was no big deal as a 17 year old to go out and drink beer on a Wednesday night, right? You could go do that, and but there were no digital cameras. There that's was right. there was and not that I did anything stupid or violated the law, but I do worry about that because yeah. it is very persistent, right? I mean, so I drank before I was 21. Sure. I went to school at Ohio University. I mean, like, it's a party school. You know, I know. I'm we we work hard, we play hard. You know, it, but, you know, I didn't wait till I was 21 to drink beer with friends at a party. Yeah. And uh, now it could it could be career wrecking or yeah. it could be, it could really impede you in getting hired. Sure. If they see you doing something weird at the cat's eye or something. Yeah. yeah. But then also, too, like, um, you know, I worry someday about 
um, medical decisions being made based off of information that is maybe true about a patient, but the patient doesn't actually know that exists. Yes. Um, right. So you mentioned like uh, digital medical records and I only get to see like a very small percentage of whatever goes into that system. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I have some kind of imaging done, the, the doctor, the, the physician that ordered that has to actually enable that to be shared with me. Um, um, and sometimes you have to like reach out to them to request. So it's like, well, it's, it's, you know, it's my spine that you scan. Why, why do I have to request to even see it uh, or, or use that to get a second opinion? Right. And so, um, not, not that I'm worried about physicians abusing that, but, uh, it, it just seems like every year insurance companies are becoming more and more powerful, uh, in some ways more powerful than, than physicians in treating one's health. Um, and I'm worried about that being used against you. It's also why I'm really concerned about like genetic testing or profiling. Or vaccinations. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm going to say this in full disclosure. I, I'm fully in advocacy of, of vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, right? I, they're really Im- impressive technology. Yeah, it's really impressive technology, all driven by computers, right? So mm-hmm. supercomputing and, and gene sequencing. And I'll be the first one to get, well, maybe not the first one, but I'll be one of the first group of people to get a booster here in a little bit. But we're now at a point where electronic health records can allow people to say you can't hold a job yep. if you don't have this. You can't do this if you don't have this. And it's it's a little terrifying to me that if we're a free society, if we want to think we're, maybe we're not a free society anymore, but if we want to think we're a free society we with autonomy over ourselves, it's getting to the point where someone's going to make it really, really difficult for you to be yourself. Yeah. I mean, I... I do believe people should get vaccinated against COVID. Oh, me too. I, mean, like, I just don't believe they should be coerced. Yeah, I mean, like, it, you know, if, you're, if your employer requires it and they're a private employer, that's their right. I mean, it's like the same. I don't think it's all that dissimilar from saying that, like, if you work at Coke, you're not allowed to drink Pepsi products here. What about a public concern, though? <sighs> I don't know. It, it, it's tough, if, isn't it? I mean, if COVID had killed 10,000 people, I maybe would be more sympathetic to that. But, um, you know, I, we, we celebrated the 20th, or not so we remembered the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 mm-hmm. over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think more people died of COVID that day than died on 9-11. Possibly. And, um, but it's, we're numb to it. Well, are we, are we numb to it? Because we're numb to like 45,000 food deaths a year. Yeah. That goes on for years. And we're numb to 480,000 smoking-related deaths a year. I mean, but if COVID-19 had been around for 50 years, yeah, we'd be numb to it. Well, we might be numb to it now, at least part of the society. I mean, right? but, but 600,000 people in a little over a year is traumatic. I mean, that's awful. And, and technology, has, technology and science has provided a clear solution that um, it does come down to, like, personal choice but it's it's a clear solution to get us out of this mess so so the thing the thing i get though is it is getting us out of the mess because i just looked at healthdata.org today and i looked at the rates of vaccine hesitancy Mm -hmm. over time and they're reducing yeah but people need time to adjust and so there's not going to be a six hundred thousand death year next year yeah right it it is going (laughs) with this virus (laughs) well yeah there's that's a whole different discussion but 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 the the reality is is that we're at a place now where we're not allowing society to adapt 
and, and have buy-in at, at a rate that they feel good about. We're at a point where we're saying, you must do this. And th so the question is, is, is that creating greater division and consternation and hatred and frustration, or is it actually solving the problem? Because I, well, I just it's talked do, to- It's doing both to some extent, but I mean like, mm. you know, the there was a lot of backlash over OU requiring students to show proof of vaccination mm. by, I think it's like November 15th. Yeah, it's coming. Uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's like week 13 of the semester. So like mm -hmm. they wait till then, like, the semester is pretty much over by that point anyway. Um, you know, so uh, there's a lot of like civil, civil liberties questions about that. Yeah. But there isn't such a strong civil liberties argument about OU requiring other vaccines before even showing up first day. Yeah, like meningitis vaccines. Meningitis, hepatitis. Um, but I wonder, I wonder when those were, when it first started, mm -hmm. right? There wasn't the pressure of you have to get this now or suffer consequences. We're not going to, when meningitis in vaccinations were implemented, it wasn't if you don't have this vaccine, you can't go to school. Yeah. It was we've got this vaccine, we really recommend it. Every year we have cases of this, and now we're getting to the point where people, okay, oh, this vaccine's been around for a long, you know, years now. I know people who got it. Yeah, I got to get this shot. Okay, fine. Versus had a vaccine for less than a year. Yeah. And now you're forcing me to do it. And again, I say this. And my advocacy is for people to get it. I just think that we're not giving society enough time to adjust and it's creating more division because people are saying, why are you so adamant about me doing this and not giving me time to get there? That's a tough thing. Well, but I mean, I think it's also, I mean, when there was a vaccine for polio, or mm -hmm. smallpox, or mm -hmm. I think in the very near future, HIV. Oh, it's coming. Um, Probably Ebola too. You know, I. I, I don't think there's a, a good chance of me ever catching HIV, but I will get that vaccination nonetheless. I mean, I think it's I think it's a civil duty to try to kill off these diseases if we can. Mm, I don't know that I get I mean, the, there I, has when, when, was, when was the last time there was a case of smallpox? Uh, I hope never again, but it's been a long time. But we still get the vaccine. Right? True. We know how horrible. We also know it's living in some freezers, some places too. Actually, you don't get smallpox vaccine. You don't get smallpox vaccine. I got smallpox vaccine. I got an experimental smallpox yeah. vaccine with the military. So well, we, we did eliminate it, so yeah. you don't have to get it. But that's interesting. Or well, measles, or you for know, sure the twenty other. But things, you know, right? with measles is a good thing too. We don't require that people absolutely have to have measles vaccines. No. Like so, there's like sixty or seventy percent. I think the 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 uh, herd immunity we like to keep that rate about eighty percent. I think in society or thereabouts. But yet we're not compelling people. You must have MMR vaccine to do all these things, right? Do you keep, to be a federal employee, and yet measles is a bad disease for a lot of people. It's not certainly as devastating as 600,000, and people are equating that. It's like, well, 600,000 people, and yet this year, it's gonna be a fraction of that. It will be a fraction of that number. And then it'll go progressively down, and as they get better at looking at surface proteins and quickly engineering boosters and stuff, it'll be even better. It'll be like flu. Like I say, my, it's a weird thing about this, by the way, just on John, you know, John, I was talking to someone the other day, and it turns out that there's this weird theory. I don't think it's weird. I think it's actually based in some sound science that, that COVID is a competitive virus, which means that if you get if you're infected with COVID and you get infected with influenza, that the COVID actually makes it harder for influenza to get into your cells. So we had this puzzling thing. Why we didn't see so many flu cases last year? It was all attributed to PPE. 
Yeah. Right. Droplet control. Yeah. Which, I didn't have a I didn't have a common cold last year. Right. I did not. <laughs> well, yeah, probably didn't come around anybody yeah. either. But, but I didn't treat a single case of influenza for the first time in 20 years wow. in a whole year. Yeah. And I told someone, I said, you know, we we have routinely for decades, we've had 30 to 60,000 people die from flu every year. Would that primarily be, though, that like people are, you know, when they when they had flu like symptoms, they went to one of the drive-through COVID testing sites, and they found out that they were negative for COVID, and therefore they just thought it was like a bad bug, bad well, virus. Clarify that for me. You know, so like um, maybe those people just didn't seek treatment because they thought they had COVID, but when they learned they hadn't had COVID, they just managed it at home. Uh, well, that's the whole point with COVID too. If you're asymptomatic with COVID. You're just asymptomatic with COVID. I mean, same thing with in any virus, right? You're just, yeah, I don't feel that sick, so I'm not going in. Um, but I'm talking about legitimately, there are people who get really sick with influenza, and predictably, like you, one, oh my gosh, four years ago, five, five years ago, five years ago, I think it was, we had a flu season. I was like literally treating 20 people a day for flu Wow. for a couple months. Yeah. It was terrible. Did you get it? <laughs> like, no, but I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a theory about that too, and this has to do with COVID that the better immunity appears to be if you've had vaccine as well as wild COVID, uh-huh. that you have more comprehensive immunity. So for- To, phys- the, to the variants? Oh yeah. yeah, well, just so you know, even the mRNA vaccines, it's still between 88% and 94% effective, even eight months out. In fact, I think it's just an abundance of caution and in fact, efficacy rates that are better than most of our other vaccines, right? So COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccines are so good that eight months out, the efficacy is still good. And they're saying, well, let's just get you a booster. We get you back up with a bigger immune response, back up in the 90s. That'll help. So you know, I work with a vulnerable population. I have friends that have illnesses. I'm going to go out and get a vaccine because yeah. I talk to a lot of people, and I don't want to be the person that gives them that. But um, but are you are you concerned about the next one? Oh, I, I'm concerned about the what, you know, what I'm really concerned about is division in society. Yeah, so I, I feel like the information war behind oh. COVID is mm. lost. Right. I mean, like, oh, well, it was lost from the beginning. And I'll tell you what the beginning was. So we talked about this yesterday in, in class about triplets that the people like to work in, in convenient concepts given in threes. So three points. What are the three takeaway points for my lecture? What are the three takeaway points for this discussion? What I saw on social media was crisis response at the beginning. Yes, people are terrified. We don't know what this is. Is this a slate wiping virus? Right. Bad. Right. And then it kept going. And we'd have these hour and a half long discussions and crisis management. And I'm thinking, this is a pandemic disease that is not novel. 1918 wiped out a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Like we still have no idea yeah, how many people died in India, right? I mean, oh, yeah. 50 to 100 million people, right? You had this thing where everybody and their kid brother wanted to get up on the screen and have something to say. And I kept thinking to myself, strategic messaging requires simple, basic instructions tell people what they need to do, say, I'm going to come back tomorrow and tell you again. I'll come back tomorrow and tell you again, but I'm not going to spend an hour on the TV. And even today, I still have public health officials get up there and they get off on typical academic tangents. And by the time it's done, people don't even know what they were there to say in the first place. Yeah. And so... Well, the loudest voices tend to rise. They do. And yet not necessarily (laughs) the ones that half the country wants to listen to. So, so yeah, strategic messaging is disastrous. Um, We we have to rethink the entire concept of strategic messaging and whoever's advising these people because they've lost ground. Yeah. If there's a COVID-22. 
or 23. Yeah. I think it's I, I, it has the potential to be even more disastrous just because uh, of yeah. mistrust with everyone. I don't want to terrify people. But the reality is, is if I want, I've said this before, I've said it openly, if I wanted to create a, a weaponized pathogen, there are a few that I could think of to be better than COVID. Wow, really? Yeah, you know why? Just, oh, because you can spread it before you even <sighs> feel the symptoms. Yeah, it's got yeah. a long latency yeah, period, yeah. you know, before you show symptoms. Uh, you tend to meet a lot of people and you're spreading the disease. A lot of people are asymptomatic, yeah. so they don't even know they've got it. Then I've got this preferentially attacking the elderly or in the vulnerable and infirm, mm -hmm. right? So I don't wipe out the entire population, but I create absolute pandemonium and terror in society. I crush economies. You stop economies. I mean, I like stop just, economies. Yeah. Right. I close businesses. And then not only that, but if I have a competitor, I can divide them politically. And especially we talked about social media. I think anybody that doesn't believe the Russians and Chinese manipulate social media in the United States is a fool. Yes. So engage in active information warfare, active information operations with very sophisticated computer program, very sophisticated uh, people who understand our psychology. If I want to take the United States down, COVID's awesome. I can I can just tear it apart, take it to, to refocus it on all different fronts, have everybody hate each other, and I can do whatever I want with yeah. impunity because the focus has now changed to internal problems and conflict. And it was not helped by people who go out and just say, you know, half of you are anti-science and crazy and half of you are the enlightened ones because the history of medical science is replete with people who are dogmatically certain of about how, how things should work only to find out that it was actually dangerous and damaging right so so instead of being a really good scientific skeptical society says yeah okay we've done our due diligence we've done risk mitigation we've done the safety measures we just accelerated the legal and review process we've got this really cool thing we have this computing power we have this gene sequencing thing we put it together and synthesize it and we we can look at surface proteins we're in a new age of how we develop this stuff you know but it's it's technology is accelerating unimaginably crazily fast, right and, and most people can't keep up with what's possible and what's not right and so like arthur c clark had this great thing where it's like um you know someone exposed to a certain type of technology for the first time would have a hard time distinguishing that from magic right at a certain level of technology right? and you know to me, I, I'm deep into this stuff, and like the fact that we created a vaccine, a functioning vaccine to production in what a year? Not even that. It was I, months. I, that's an incredible human achievement. Massive. Right? But the problem is, because it's so fast, because it's so complicated, because people don't care to learn about the basic science behind any of it. It's it's not trusted. <laughs> Are they equipped <laughs> to learn about though? Is are, are schools too focused on other things as opposed to teaching people the basics of why, you know, yeah, how that, to be good critical thinkers, fair. how to be yeah. reasonably skeptical about science, how to make good risk versus opportunity choices, and you know, I don't know, John. Yeah. I mean, I don't have all the answers because there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise, and everyone is susceptible to it to some degree. It's true. Um, I mean, if if you see ten seconds of an hour long video. You, you you could have like a very you could have a very specific take on what's actually going on there without even wanting to know the context of something. It goes right um, back to our concept of deep fakes. The yeah. ability to put a 10 second soundbite into someone. I mean, by the t if you took a selective 10 second soundbite and put it on a certain figures widely seen, you could shape a narrative and a message that, oh, yeah. that was debunkable. You don't even need the but, audio. But within the 24 20 to 48 hours to get ahead of that incredible damage may have been done, Sure, right? Yeah, I mean, like, 
you don't even need the audio clip anymore. I mean, imagine. Wait a minute. I, what do you mean? An AI can can take someone's voice and recreate that voice to sound like it's them. With good fidelity. With great fidelity. Really. I mean, um, so my my first exposure actually just did an interview about this this morning. My first exposure to deepfakes. It wasn't called deepfakes at the time. Uh, was at SIGGRAPH 2017. SIGGRAPH is a conference focused for focused on like computer graphics and interactive technologies. Where's it at? Uh, it, it varies. Like this, this one happened to be in Los Angeles. Did you go? I did. Was it nice? It was amazing. Did you have street tacos? I, I don't eat street anything in Los Angeles. I Probably a good idea. Yeah. Keep going. Then. Um, and so uh, <laughs> it, it was a talk. I think it was by uh, University of Washington researchers. They had taken some photos um, of uh, former President Obama and uh, synthesized the voice and used this new technology to make it look like he was actually saying this. And I, I, it was incredible. I mean, like the, the quality of it was like really convincing. So they, they did a great job of showing this. So they showed the video first before they said anything about the research. And then they're like, okay, everything you saw here is fake. Um, and they started pulling that apart. And it didn't feel like rocket science. I mean, like, it's like, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Can the, is it a point now where the forensics people have a hard time determining what a deep fake is? Or are there still markers that a good forensic person can say, yeah, this a is clearly A good forensic fake. person, I think, it can still figure that out relatively simplistically, but I think it's becoming more complicated. I mean, so like deep fakes last year were, were kind of easy to debunk because uh, the, the, the characters in the video didn't blink enough. I mean, mm. it was kind of a giveaway um, that, like, uh, you know, uh, someone delivering a, a speech but not blinking um, on, on, like, when they, when they try to accent something in their, you know, that was a giveaway. Yeah. But the people creating these deep fakes also learn from that. They're like, oh, okay, we just need to. What's the uncanny valley problem, right? Yeah. So you're trying to get past the uncanny valley, and they're doing it because they figure out. Yeah. Someone says they don't blink enough. Oh, we'll fix that. We'll yeah. make an algorithm to analyze the real blink rate of this person, then we'll just put that into our but considerations. I mean, it, it's this country has. We, we've proven to ourselves in this country in the last just decade that a, a lo, we are all susceptible to disinformation. Okay, and so if you create a highly convincing deepfake, that is not easy to debunk you could start a revolution with that. I mean, like, uh, if, you, if you created a deep, deep fake of, like, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden saying that they manufactured COVID to release on the population, people, a lot of people are going to believe that, and it's going to create a lot of harm. Well, and, and so just so people listening might, we'll close with this in the first segment, and John, you're going to help me out with another yeah. one? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to close with this. Just so you think that this isn't, this is, okay, well, this is a new phenomenon. It's not. Sam Adams was basically bomb throwing, <laughs> right? During the, before the revolution, yeah. he was creating all this <laughs> yeah. misinformation about King George and taxes and stuff. The, the king had basically said, "No, the colonies have the right to tax themselves, and all these taxes are coming up." Yep. They'd already decided that in England, but yet there were revolutionaries who said, "No, I'm just going to tell people what I want them to think," which yep. is, you know, they're, they're they're oppressing us. And there were other issues, of course. But my point is, is that people have been doing this now, though. They have the ability to appeal to other senses. Well, it's everyone, no longer just your brain, it's your is eyes, your ears, yep. and you can see. And what you what seeing is believing. A picture's worth a thousand words. Sam Adams just said a printing press. This is now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get to your brain and make you think that this president is actually saying this stuff. Absolutely. Which is terrifying to me. Yeah. Because and, it's, and it's a you know it's you know within a couple of years it's going to be a 14 year old screwing around that's going to create that. Oh. I mean it's it's coming. Yeah. 
Let's talk about that second segment. All right. Okay, guys, thank you. This is the first segment with John, with John Bowditch, um, who is a professor. Are you a professor of media arts and science? What are no, you professor? No, I am associate professor in the J. Warren McClure School of Emerging Communication Technologies, which it's, it's doesn't a, fit on a business card well. It's a mouthful. What's the acronym? We just call it McClure. McClure. Yeah, the McClure School. He's at the McClure School at Ohio University. And we'll talk at the beginning of the next segment a little bit about more what Grid Lab does. Um, in this deal where we're trying to synthesize the implications of technology and, and medicine and all that stuff. And so with that, I bid you a, a good day. I hope you have a great one. And then uh, hope you listen to the second segment next week. Take care. Rotations is a periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, the state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense, or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people who pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. Rotations was founded and created by Nisarg Bakshi, Brian Plough, and Todd Fredericks, all of whom have various intermittent input in the production of Rotations. And we ask always that you consider we want it to be the best product that we can give to you. So please tweet, uh, retweet us, post us on your favorite social media platform, send us feedback, ask people to participate in Rotations. We would be grateful for that. It will improve our content and make it a better experience for you. Take care.